Welcome to Unpleasant Movies Conversations. Today I'm talking with Aspjorn Grønstad, professor of visual culture at the University of Bergen in Norway, and author of several books pertaining to unpleasant cinema, among others Transfigurations, Violence, Death and Masculinity in American Cinema, Screening the Unwatchable, Spaces of Negation in Post-Millennial Art Cinema, and Film and the Ethical Imagination. Hello, Aspion. Hello, and thanks uh, so much for inviting me to this uh, podcast. You're very welcome. I first encountered your work through um, a book that collects several different authors, The New Extremism in Cinema. Mm-hmm. I was delighted to learn there's a Norwegian academic writing a lot about films that provoke and engage the viewer in this kind of way. And you use a term, um, unwatchable. That's part of the title for screening the unwatchable. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit how you got into this field of examining films that engage the spectator in this kind of way. Great question. Uh, let's see if I can try to unravel it. I guess my first interest was in film violence, and that was the subject of the first book, which is also my doctoral dissertation. And it's so long ago that I can't exactly remember <laughs> what kind of spurred the interest in that topic. I guess it was to some extent that a lot of my favorite film directors, like uh, Peckinpah, happened to make quite violent films, so that was part of it, mm. uh, I guess. But anyway, that was sort of the background for having spent a couple of years writing for the dissertation and then publishing it as a book. I came to realize that. Violence is a grisly subject matter, but all the films that I have written about in the book are essentially very pleasurable and very entertaining. You know, from uh, the classic gangster movie Scarface up until uh, Fight Club, which was the last film that I wrote about. Even though they have, you know, scenes that might make you uncomfortable watching them, they are nevertheless quite entertaining and pleasant, right? So I was thinking, hmm, isn't there a kind of a discrepancy here? Violence as something that everybody, you know, should stay away from or avoid. <laughs> not something to be embraced, and then entertainment or, you know, pleasure. And at the same time, as I finished the book, I started to notice that there were a lot of very <laughs> emotional demanding and you know, sometimes physically demanding films coming out more from the art cinema direction, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, Is this around the same time as the, what's often called the new French extremism? Like the yeah, yeah, it was from uh, different people dated differently, but one of the first films that sort of tend to sort of start the, that kind of wave, it's not a wave really, but just a short tendency. Uh, I guess it was uh, Gaspar Noé's uh, Seul Contre Tout yeah. and also uh, Catherine Brella's Romance mm-hmm. right? in the late 90s, 98, 99. And then going on until Antichrist, I think was one of the most recent films that I mm-hmm. wrote about. And there, you know, violence and the shock were of a completely different nature, right? Even though they were very diverse, it still seemed to me to form part of almost like a trend. So I guess the background, <laughs> finally getting to the point, I guess, for the Unwatchable project was that I realized that so many films came out within the art cinema tradition that seemed, in a sense, to break with or at least modify our perception of the classic art cinema from, let's say, Bergman and Fellini in the 50s. Yeah. Antonioni, uh, very often very cerebral. It's about the inner life psychology of the protagonist, right? And then you have this tradition, but it's now it's full of visceral, very shocking images, basically. Right? So I was fascinated by that almost like hybrid quality of this kind of violence taking place in that kind of genre, if you want to call it that, that goes much further than the films that I wrote about, like Tarantino films. Mm-hmm. So that triggered my curiosity, I guess. Yeah, they and, often use elements of horror, but in a very different kind of context that's yeah. less titillating, more provocative. Exactly, like uh, Trouble Every Day, you know, Claudinista, yeah. I mean, most uh, directly perhaps. And then I realized, or I guess I arrived at the hypothesis that this type of films 
really engaged in performing a kind of violence against the viewer. It's almost like they want to test the endurance of the spectators in the cinema. It's almost like an attack on the viewer mm. rather than the, in Fight Club and Reservoir Dogs and Western gangster films. You know, the protagonists are attacked by other protagonists, you know, but with these films, it seemed to be that the, the spectator himself or herself was the target of the abused. And that fascinated me on a sort of a many levels. Uh, so that was, I guess, the background. You said about Fight Club that the violence was for the viewers in contrast to at the viewers in many mm-hmm. of these films, mm-hmm. uh, like the direction of where the pressure goes. Yeah, I think there's a transition right there from presenting movie violence as entertainment and as pleasure to a different tradition that tries to undermine the viewer's pleasure in a mm. sort of almost paradoxical way, right? Yeah. You know, the famous flashing words toward the end of Alone Against All, mm. you have 30 seconds to leave the cinema. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get this warning about uh, there's a horrible yeah. scene coming and you can leave now almost like a joke or like a humoristic provocation. Yeah, it is. It has that kind of uh, self-consciousness about it, I think. Mm. And it's supposed to be uh, humorous also. But still, I find that fascinating that um, there seem to be so many different directors working that were intent on testing the limits of the audience more than anything else almost. And it happened more or less simultaneously from 98, 99 and up until 2009, 10. And of course, I guess it, you could say it still continues, but not with the same intensity, I think. I recently saw Dao Natasha, a Russian film uh, on the Biff Film Festival uh, last week. And uh, it had certain segments that I would definitely think of as transgressive, but I don't think it's the same Well, I think you have a lot of films that, I mean, it's kind of been normalized Mm. a bit. They won't create the same type of shockwaves that Irreversible Mm. maybe did, but they may use similar or have a, like, you had like uh, Son of Soul a few years ago Mm -hmm. and um, Monos last year. I haven't seen that, but yeah. But, you know, they're quite intense and unpleasant, but not maybe as directly confrontational as those early 2000 films uh, I agree. But then, of course, the the general problem with all kinds of transgression in art, whether it's sort of violence or sexuality or it's more on the level of form itself, like in the modernist movements, mm. is that the shock value easily evaporates because, you know, we get used to it. I mean, you've seen yeah, it yeah, yeah. twice or several times. Mm. It's just not the same. So that's always a problem for, I guess, artworks that attempt to be subversive or go beyond established mm. tastes that they will be commodified maybe or the shock value will just wear off so uh, that's, uh, i mean if you watched yeah. a fair amount of these films then your skin hardens a bit and uh, mm. but sometimes i'm still surprised i rewatched trouble every day claire denis mm-hmm. not too long ago and i was thinking oh maybe this isn't so bad and then still <laughs> it, it did have an impact towards the end uh, that's right. And it's not always the um, sequences or scenes that are made set up to be super disturbing that turn out to be the most difficult ones. I mean, for me, yeah. one of the most difficult scenes that I wrote about is this spassing scene in Las Ventrias Idiots yeah, when yeah, yeah. Uh, the main character, um, <laughs> Karen, comes home to her family and yeah. there's a cake. That's uh, almost impossible to watch. Mm. I, I think there's also some evidence to suggest that, at least for some of these directors, this was actually sort of a subconscious, deliberate, intentional project, especially Michael Haneke, because mm. he said in an interview that his aim was to rape yeah. the viewer into <laughs> consciousness or into awareness mm. of different social, cultural problems. Although you're not necessarily supposed to trust the, the author, you know, as yeah. uh, literary theory has taught us for almost a century. Still, there's something to that, right? So he seems to be very aware of um, a particular project that he wants to test out through his films, you know. Yeah, yeah. and I think you can uh, sense the same through Gaspar Noe and Catherine Brillard. Mm-hmm. They, Absolutely, yeah. They, yeah. they have an intention to unsettle. And, you know, at least with Haneke and, and Noah, there's a mischievous sense about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, especially uh, Gaspar Noé, I think, and Von Trier maybe also has this uh, yeah. 
Haneke, I'm not sure, so sure. I mean, maybe more recently, but uh, for a long time, he seemed to be sort of deadly serious about it. doesn't seem to have that much humor in his films, maybe. Well, depending a little bit how you see it. I guess I often see a lot of humor in his films. Funny Games is the clearest example mm-hmm. where he's yeah. super mm-hmm. mischievous about yeah. twisting expectations. Mm-hmm. But uh, depending a bit on the film, but I think he has maybe a bit like Kafka in the sense that the humor's there, but it's not so explicit. Mm-hmm. And it's there to take it if you see it, in a sense. Mm. It doesn't yeah. lean on the, the humor. Mm. Yeah. I agree. Sometimes maybe the humor can be unintentional as well, as in like Seidel, yeah. you know, the Austrian director. I think uh, some of the scenes are so gloomy that it elicits laughter almost. Yeah, or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if that answered that particular question. I, I'm sure there are more that I could have said about the background for yeah. the interest. But I think it's, a, it's an interesting project intellectually also to try to understand these films. Tell me a little bit about your journey, because you studied here in Bergen originally. That was film theory, or no? I, I uh, when I enrolled at the university in, in Bergen uh, in the nineties, English was my first subject. I, I thought I was going to study language, uh, you know, uh-huh. f- for the rest of my career because that was philology, linguistics. That was my main interest. And then very quickly after arriving, uh, <laughs> I found that the literature was more exciting. Yeah. So literature, English, American, British literature, and then also Nordic, Scandinavian. I was so lucky that I got a scholarship to spend a year abroad in in the U.S. and uh, that's where I discovered film. Although I've been interested in film since I was very tiny, that was when I discovered that you could actually study film in in the same systematic fashion as you could literature. So I spent a year in uh, Santa Barbara in California, which at the time, according to the one of the main players of international film studies, David Bordwell. He named that the best undergraduate department for film in the United States at the time. Huh? Nice. So I was exposed to a lot of uh, <laughs> film courses, anything from broad film history courses to very, very specialized on Japanese cinema, All right. documentary, uh, feminist film theory. I took a lot of And uh, yeah, that, I guess, what got me on the track. But I stayed on in the English department and uh, did my master's and PhD degrees in literature, but I wrote about film. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, did you have like a, a focus with your literature studies? Was it like, a, I mean, you said American literature. American and British, but that was yeah. sort of part of the, um, the syllabus. I mean, you read the classics, basically. Okay. There wasn't any particular emphasis, maybe until a little bit in master level. So I have that background, but my PhD was about film. Even my master's thesis in the English department was about film. I wrote about narrative theory and film, Clockwork Orange. So that. Yeah. The violence <laughs> dimension was there already at mm. that time. So um, I have published essays and articles on literature, American literature also, but 95% of my publications in cinema studies. So yeah. did that answer what you... Yeah, well, I was just curious about... You said you went to America and stuff. That's certainly informed the books that I've read. Like, I haven't seen so many Norwegian academic texts about this sort of cinema, and uh, it seems to sit in a very international context. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the cinema studies in general, I guess, are international from the beginning. Mm. But also, uh, the first book was based on the dissertation. It was all American film and the American film tradition because it was written within the context of yeah. English departments. So, yeah, and that's what you studied, right? Mm. American or British or Canadian texts right, yeah. in general. I guess I could have written more in, in Norwegian about these kind of uh, transgressive films and unwatchable mm. films. But that was probably partly due to my training as an Americanist. Yeah. So everything we read was in English and it was an American culture that you were sort of familiarized with. And also after several years in, in the States, again, as a Fulbright when I was working on my PhD. And also, of course, the more mundane 
aspects of being an academic in Norway at this particular time where you have to publish in English in order to, okay. uh, for tenure, all that, ah. that kind of career stuff. That's part of our generation, I think, and, and the younger generations. They are um, trained, they are sort of socialized into writing in English, articles and books and, and everything. Okay. So that might explain why oh, I could always have written about unwatchable cinema in Norwegian. It actually didn't really much occur to me, <laughs> to be honest. I always had as a goal to be part of the international conversation around the films that I am interested in and writing about. Some of these, I guess most of them would be fairly well known in the Norwegian context, but not necessarily all of them, right? So it wouldn't have resonated maybe as well. I well, know. I mean, you'd have to be like specifically interested in art house cinema. So I think so. <laughs> but what is this scene like? Is there a lot of like academic literature concerning like unwatchable or I mean, I know there's some around specifically the French extremism because that was kind mm-hmm, of a, a mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. But is there like a continuous discussion about this sort of tendency in, I, mean, I guess, art as well mm. and, and film that provokes the spectator? I think there is. Only, was it last year? Yeah, 2019. There was a big book that came out in the US. I think it was on Rutgers. Yeah, the book was called Unwashable. One of the editors um, uh, is, of course, a well-known uh, Norwegian film professor, Gunnar Ibsen. Okay. And I have a short chapter in that book. He invited me, and uh, I was just fortunate enough to be at the book launch in Seattle because there was a film conference in Seattle okay. uh, in March last year. And I was there anyway, and um, the editors, uh, three or four editors, they launched the book there. And then mm-hmm. one of the other editors told me that screening and watchable was sort of the point of departure, was the, the inspiration. For, oh, nice. But this was a much bigger project, uh, 30, 40 authors, both film critics and academics and filmmakers also I think maybe artists mm. that wrote very short pieces yeah. not a, a traditional sized academic article but but short essays about unwatchable films and cinema and uh, we were free to do you know whatever so that is an example of I think that it's an ongoing conversation uh, yeah. about that but also of course if you look at I mean transgression it's a pretty important concept I think in art history most of the successive waves of modernism in art and literature as well have somehow been intertwined with the notions of transgression I mean, it was kind of the point, right? That yeah, to, yeah, yeah. To make it new, as some of the American authors uh, said in the 20s and 30s, and uh, cubism and vorticism and all that. So transgression, I think, is part of a, part of the game, so to speak, for a whole tradition in aesthetics. Yeah, you quote Picasso uh, from the intro of Screening the Unwatchable, where he says, artists should feel compelled to create unacceptable images. Yeah, I like that phrase, unacceptable image. What is that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think in that sense, I mean, uh, the reflection or academic work or philosophical works mm. around ideas of shock and transgression and all that kind of stuff, I think it still keeps on being investigated mm. because new stuff always comes out, both in the art sphere and in literature maybe, right, that deals with that concept. So I think it's not necessarily, I, I don't think it's a, at all a, um, a phenomenon that was sort of limited to that particular time around turn of the millennium and mm. all these films, Gus Bonway, Haneke, Anfantria, I think uh, this is more a constant in art theory or mm. in criticism. Yeah, but film is interesting in a sense because it's typically conceived of as a popular cultural yeah, phenomenon. Yeah. And even art house cinema has maybe easier access to, let's say, a, a broader demographic than art institutions often have. It's easier to become part of the conversations per se. Mm-hmm. Of course, you, you're right. Like There's a long tradition, perhaps most famously Salo by Pasolini. 
one of the ideas that I had when working on the Unwatchable book was that transgressive cinema is almost like a subterranean tradition that has been part of the medium of film since very early in, in, the, in the history of the, the medium. It's not at all an accident, of course, that uh, I chose the, the image from Bunuel's uh, Andalusian Dog as yeah. the cover for that book because uh, the slicing of the eyeball, that's a pretty transgressive moment. That's true. Uh, yeah. And I think that if you have done more historical research than I did, you'd probably find a lot of more sort of underground transgressive films from that moment, from the 20s silent period and up until the present. But my focus was solely on mm. contemporary cinema at the time, right? Yeah. But you could probably write that history, I think. Solo would be one touchstone. Um, Last Tango in Paris, maybe. Mm. Some of Godard's film from the, the 60s. And mm. uh, also underground, American underground cinema. You'd find a lot of interesting stuff that would qualify as transgressive, I think, from the 50s and 60s and 70s. So I think it's more a continuous tradition, but it remained kind of away from the limelight until it's kind of floated up around 2000. And we also have to remember when we're talking about this, I think that many of these directors were already quite well-known or yeah. e even famous. I mean, they were among the most renowned film artists completely independently of the shocking films they made, I think. Claire Denis, yeah. probably one of the five most important filmmakers in, since 1970 or, or so in, in contemporary time. She's made a lot of films that are not transgressive, at least not in the same way as Trouble every day, right? Yeah. She's an established auteur, very highly acclaimed. Uh, the same with Hanukkah. Mm. Uh, so their reputation isn't really based on the transgressive films that they made. It's the sum total of their whole output, which is held in very high regard, I think, among film critics. But that was also interesting to me that mm, these films that have these shocking images often come from art directors that are very highly thought of among yeah. critics. Yeah. It's true. And I think if you look closer on almost like any of the, the great filmmakers, you'll find mm. at least one example that's pretty unpleasant yeah like uh, Kubrick as you say Clockwork Orange and the closer you look at it the more you look forward I think you find that there's uh, an interest for most like if they have like an artistic ambition or, or, mm. or, or vision in terms of film as a medium that the exploration of how do I upset the spectator in a way communicating some theme or another absolutely I agree and think of Hitchcock for instance mm. and uh, although there are certainly uh, super entertaining films I mean there are moments in Hitchcock's filmography that are kind of unpleasant The Birds for instance I think it's, yeah, uh, it's true. we have seen so much stuff since then that it doesn't have the same sense of being deeply disturbing anymore but there is something about flock of gathering birds and all yeah, that yeah, it's right. kind of similar to Jaws in the sense that it takes mm. like a, an animal and it creates yeah. a hysteria around yeah. it like yeah, yeah. you feel anxious about birds or yeah. sharks. Yeah. Uh, also, the the representation of sort of psychological imbalance mm. in Vertigo. Although it's not graphic, really, but there's something about uh, what happens to the, the main character, that sanity issue and all that, that's kind of disturbing, I think, in that film. So even in the most sort of popular niches of, you know, mainstream cinema, there are moments that are disturbing. That's very true, yeah. This image of um, Bunuel's The Slicing of the Eyeball, where you see a woman's face and he holds a razor blade, mm -hmm. and then the camera cuts to the moon, and a yep. cloud passing through the moon, like a thin cloud. So it looks like it's going to be a, like a visual metaphor mm -hmm. before it then cuts back and then very explicitly shows, I guess it's probably like a pig eye or... Yeah, I think it's maybe a donkey or yeah, something like that. Something, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very, you know, explicitly shown being mm -hmm. cut. And you use this phrase, uh, razor blade gestures. That was directly inspired <laughs> by that. Yeah, yeah, it's an example of a sort of a fragment of a, an artwork that generates kind of reflection that can be illustrative or useful, I think, to illuminate the theoretical point. Right? In a sense, many of the scenes in the films that I write about in that book can be thought of as razor blade gestures in the sense that, you know, the cutting of the eyeball, it's a very sensitive body part, right? Absolutely. Uh, and it's the one we use when watching and take in the film also, so there's that dimension. 
But that was direct inspiration from Bonuel's. Uh, yeah. It's also, yeah, as you say, it's a meta act, mm. a meta gesture think, where uh, he's but... pointing at you, the viewer. You're not just seeing something foul, but your means of consuming the mm-hmm. foul is also mm-hmm. yeah. disturbed directly. Uh, there's a sense of humor in that that I quite yeah. like, actually. Yeah. He's, again, very mischievous, yeah. about playing I about our expectations. Absolutely. I think, you know, there's something uh, maybe slightly paradoxical about the whole phrase unwatchable cinema in a sense, because yeah. obviously films are meant to be watched and unwatchable yeah. goes against that. And uh, I think it's partly a um, descriptive term for what I, I was trying to do there. But it, I also noticed that it came up in at least one review by maybe the world's most well-known mainstream film critic, Roger Ebert, yeah. about I think it was Antichrist. And this is so bleak that it's basically unwatchable, I think was this yeah. in the review for Chicago Tribune. I think I'd already started using it myself and go back to the novel that Catherine Brea based her own film on where she uses unmatchable mm. in, in the novel. There's these um, sources that I, that I found, but of course I tried to develop it as, as a key concept to cover or explain these film traditions or the films that I read about. And uh, then it's, it's kind of grown past also through this other book about unwatchable. Yeah, yeah. It's a term now yeah. that you've coined. Uh, but I'm, yes. I'm, uh, it's important to underscore that unwatchable, I, I meant it as a quite general term, mm. not about just violence, but also about representation of transgressive acts of sexuality, for instance, mm. but also other kinds of unwatchability. Uh, there's one chapter in the book that is at least partly about extremely slow-moving films and the boredom that produce. Yeah. So the sense of being bored is also something that can make a film unwatchable, right? Yeah, it's so slow-moving that it's yeah. unwatchable. And that's a completely different meaning from... Of course, uh, slicing eyeball or uh, one take rape scene in Invasible or something like that, right? So I, it was important for me to try to use the term in a general fashion. Cinema is not necessarily unwatchable in just that one way. There can be other reasons for its unwatchability to put yeah. it that way. It's interesting reading about slow cinema. I'm paraphrasing, but I think you mm-hmm. said something after like extreme cinema. The only barrier left is boredom. Mm-hmm. To bore the viewer is the most extreme thing you can do as a kind of provocation. Mm. That works totally against the tradition of at least American cinema that's supposed to pull you in. It kind of forces you maybe even to externalize like the, the process mm-hmm. of the film. You're mm-hmm. kind of sitting there bored watching you watching the film. And that can be very upsetting mm-hmm. or, or very distancing at least. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, your example, um, Stray Dogs. Yeah, that's a film that I wrote about in, uh, in the ethics book. That's a good example, but there, you know, that's become a, a genre onto its own, mm. slow cinema, and yeah. there are several books written about it already. Yeah. Uh, I've contributed to one. So that's a thing, you know, slow, <laughs> slow moving films and, and it's international, all kinds of filmmakers from different countries that, you know, have been labeled as sort of creators of slow films. Yeah. So that's actually a genre. And yeah. uh, I like a lot of it, I have to admit, not, not, not all of it, but I think this kind of, it's a kind of experimentation with form, I think, and it's trying to instill a sense of duration in the viewer and um, there's a lot of interesting aspects to it and frankly I don't really understand so many people seem opposed to it Mm. in in a sense because well if you go to a gallery and and look at paintings it's a still image and uh, if you like it and if you're fascinated by it you might watch it for a long time so why can't you watch an unbroken cinema scene that you know lasts for one minute or two minutes without cuts you know that is interesting I think we're sort of partly spoiled or ruined by Hollywood cinema that has to be and Hollywood cinema, of course, its um, average shot length has gone um, down drastically. I think it's uh, not even a third of what it was in the, in the 60s and 70s. So it's become much, much more rapid. 
But that's interesting as well because so much of the time-based media, the contemporary avant-garde is like TikTok, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's super short yeah. and Vine and you have these, in the early days of YouTube as well, it was these quite short format things that were very experimental. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh -huh. like a lot of the, let's say, youth culture or new frontiers of let's say, mm -hmm. video or cinema, mm -hmm. they're often very short. Yeah, and almost subliminal. Yeah. <laughs> in the, uh, and uh, yeah, of course, it's, it's its own language. Mm. But there's a limit to how short it can be before, I mean, much of the information in the frame would be lost mm. on you, I think. Wouldn't it? I mean, you don't have time to actually take in yeah. everything in the composition before it's gone and yeah. <laughs> a new image replaces it. So the interesting about both those things and slow cinema is that it makes time visible the idea of time becomes actualized for you as a yeah. spectator or participant. Absolutely. So, yeah. That's an important part of it. I think it's, it's yeah, I think that's a good observation. Uh, it's like a specialization of time passing in a sense, yeah. right? Because it's difficult to represent time, I think. It's so abstract, right? Whatever the medium, literature, it's very difficult to do that, right? But passages that can be boring, you get that sense of time in a sense on a visual field. That's, I find fascinating yeah. for some reason. I think I first encountered like tendencies of slow cinema, going to festivals in the early, you know, early 2000s and seeing, you know, some European film with scenes of just a person working, doing manual labor or doing some boring day-to-day mm. -day routine. It kind of reminds me of Gustave Courbet with these paintings of mundane, everyday working life scenes. Yeah, I agree. Somehow, I mean, thematically, maybe... Of course, uh, for my kids, for instance, all art cinema would be slow cinema. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and all Hollywood cinema up until 1975 would be <laughs> slow cinema to them. Yeah. I think because they're used to different pace. But I, I guess that's yeah. what's different about like the extreme cinema, that it's, it's kind mm. of like the opposite of a lot of the expectations you have of art cinema, that it, mm. it does engage you very strongly and it puts you in a position that's... They're often quite engaging as well as being quite extreme. The cinematic mm. language has some of the American elements, a lot of these films, mm. I think. Yeah. They want to kind of pull you in and push you away at the same mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. uh, That's a good description, yeah. They have a very uh, resonant, formal language. And it's not only the images. I remember went to, I think it must have been Man Bites Dog. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. A, <laughs> the Belgian film with a friend. And he had to leave the screening after maybe 20 minutes and uh, asked him afterward. It wasn't because of the depiction, it was the sound. He couldn't cope with the sound effects, the uh. sound in the, in the film. And Irreversible, of course, has this overwhelming sound uh, that can be maybe as uncomfortable and as transgressive as, as the images sometimes. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. He uses so, these frequencies yeah, of sound that's yeah. meant to like strike you in the gut or something. Mm, yeah, uh, I agree. Since Screening of the Watchable, you've kind of been focusing a lot around the ethics of films as well. Yes, I guess that was, uh, I guess, the upshot of having done this huge study on American film violence that when I got to the end, I was starting to think more and more about the ethics of, because again, going back to how entertaining they are and how exciting they are, but also there might be some problems with this kind of yeah, ethical problems, right? And uh, think of uh, Peckinpah's Straw Dogs, which I think is in some ways a, an excellent film. But it has some problems, I think, especially with gender politics now. Mm -hmm. and that, that probably was should have been visible enough in 1971, but certainly now in the 50 years later. Having worked through all these analyses and trying to contextualize American film violence also with respect to the broader culture and the history, I started thinking more about ethics. And that was pretty present already in the Unwatchable book because 
some of my interest, I think, around these films were exactly that the more extreme the films, the better they would sort of serve as a laboratory for ethical problems or mm. moral problems, yeah. right? And you can't really deal with all these films without having to ask some ethical questions, I think. Yeah, you, know? you need to talk somehow. Yeah, like uh, The Idiots, Ren Fontaine, Hanukkah's whole output, really, mm. and Gaspar Noé. And, uh, so that came almost organically alongside working and writing and theorizing about these films. And then that whole vein of interest sort of crystallized into a new project where ethics and form was the, the main explicit focus in Unwashable. It was part and parcel of the analysis, but it wasn't sort of singled out as a topic of its own. It was the unwashability that was the main focus. So one thing sort of led to another there from book to book. But I was fascinated by this relationship between aesthetics and ethics that, you know, had, of course, intrigued <laughs> so many critics and philosophers, you know, from hundreds of years back, but particularly aesthetic form and ethics, because normally we would think of ethics as having to do with actions, good actions or bad actions, and, yeah. and to do with language, and certainly above all, content. I was playing around with this idea that maybe if the style of an artistic object or a style of a text itself can carry some kind of ethical content, that would be quite interesting to explore. I'm not sure if I sold it very successfully in the book, but I, at least I tried to put the focus from narrative to form and looking at compositions and color and all, and all that. That was the ambition. I realized uh, <laughs> before I was done, I, it was probably too ambitious because it's super difficult to write about ethics and form in that sense, but I tried at least yeah. to do it. And uh, I tried to introduce some concepts that I think it can be useful for thinking about the relationship between ethics and form in film, particularly the notions of the other from Levinas and that whole that tradition and trying to find different concepts that I think belonged to that whole problem field. But that was a demanding task. <laughs> I found it very interesting. One of the things that kind of struck me was the idea of an image not as just something consumed as a passive, but as an mm -hmm. agent in a sense. Mm -hmm. As a, I mean, we mentioned it before, like the idea that an artist creates a work, mm -hmm. but the work has its own life in a sense. And mm -hmm. even like the projected ideas of the artist don't always represent the whole of the work itself. And in that way, mm -hmm. an image you know, it becomes a force of its own and maybe manifests its own ethics in a way. Uh, mm, yeah, it's an interesting way of putting it, I think. Are you getting at uh, this notion of bio-visual? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Please explain this term, uh, bio-visual. Uh. Although I introduced it, I guess, in that book, it wasn't really completely done. I'm still <laughs> thinking about it. Yeah. And uh, it's basically maybe an amalgam of other theorists' ideas about images almost like living things or as analogous to living things. You know, I took it from uh, the German art historian Hans Bell and his work on the sort of completely intertwined relation body and images that the history of images in our culture is in a sense at the same time a history of the human body and then secondly from Tom Mitchell the American art historian and literature professor who's written many books but one called um, What Do Pictures Want where he toys with the idea of images being almost like animate objects that make certain demands on us as viewers and have certain desires of their own and also Joanna Zulinska and Sarah Kember's work on photography as an act of cutting and photographic images are kind of a living organ Organisms, in a sense. In what sense, cutting? That's uh, <laughs> it's a complex idea. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if I'll be able to paraphrase it spontaneously just by talking. Actually, I could try. I guess they rely on so many philosophical forerunners yeah. like Henri Bergson and his work on time and temporality and all that. But I think they think of if you take a photo just with your iPhone or whatever, that's what they call an incision into the fabric of existence. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a choice, mm -hmm. choice of object, choice of framing and all that. And that becomes kind of a thing. So you, by taking a photograph, you make a cut in the sort of the ongoing flow of reality and incision. And that becomes something that is almost animate in a sense. That's just a very, very imprecise yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rearticulation of their stance. 
That makes me think a little bit about, you quoted Joseph Brodsky, where he says, every new aesthetic reality makes ethic reality more precise. That's a quote that I really like. I can't remember when the first time I encountered it, but it was probably at least way before both of the books that we have discussed, you know, and uh, it stuck with me. And I think it captures much more succinctly than I've been able to do, though, the whole project of the, the ethics book in a sense that uh, I think that's really true. I mean, you know, that the way we present things through images and art and literature and music, it kind of alters the ethics of the world in a sense, right? Yeah, and you write a bit about the idea that art isn't just mimetic. It doesn't just mirror mm. the new world. Every new work adds material to the world. Yeah, it yeah, kind of enlarges yeah, yeah. the world. It's often easy to think of like a film biography of you know a famous person as like, hey, we're mirroring the world. Mm. But yep. it really doesn't because mm. it's not an actual image of the world. It's reinterpretation yeah. and widening of an idea, maybe. Absolutely. It expands on, on the existing things, right? The existing world. So it's not a reflection or a mirror or anything, but it's something new in a sense. That goes for all of these, you know, cinema, art and uh, you know, music. And for some reason, it seems to be, a, for some at least, a difficult uh, sell because I guess many of us are very used to thinking about literature, for instance, as a reflection of reality, in a sense. And mimesis theory is still strong among many. But I, in a sense, I completely reject it. I think that uh, all sort of artistic endeavors and literature and music and cinema are basically always about transforming what already exists, even though it's very subtly. Sometimes it's what you see up on screen seems very recognizable. But even when it is a super realistic uh, film and say, the, the British tradition, for instance, mm. It's still not a copy. It's always something new that's been introduced by the work. And it adds to what we already have. It can't be otherwise, I think. And of course, purely on a cultural level, it gives you an, a new item to talk about or relate yeah. to. But also in perceiving reality, it can widen your scope, enlighten you to new themes. Or was this something you wrote about? Like the idea that it is ethical in and of itself because... It's unlike a painting, like film is really good at creating empathy. That's mm. what it does. Mm. A lot of the American cinema is based on this, that you're taking a spectator and you're engaging them to empathize really strongly. Mm. You know, if you have dramatic music or, you know, beautiful pictures, mm. it kind of engages your feelings mm. and not just your thoughts. Yeah, that's a good example. I think that the use of empathy as a sort of aesthetic strategy almost in mainstream film. But I think yeah, also the ethics of cinema comes through in the ability of the medium to represent other ways of seeing that's not part of our own upbringing, for instance. Right? I mean, mm. films from other corners of the world that simply show us something very different from what we used to. And, and there's an ethical aspect to that, I think, that's very important, actually. Yeah, I found your description of uh, Leviathan in the films and ethical imagination yeah. to be really interesting. I haven't actually seen it, but it's kind of been on my radar for a while and been interested to see it. But the idea of like a, a non-human perspective, you know, you don't have, like, have a human mm. protagonist or a human situation. Mm. You have a kind of nature mm. raw. You should see it. I think it's unlike anything else. It's a very unique film, but it's very interesting, both aesthetically, intellectually, but it's quite demanding. It could be a case of unwatchable cinema in a sense, because after having seen it, you feel like you've been on a treadmill for five hours. It's really demanding, physically demanding to watch it because of all the shifting perspectives and uh, chaos and everything. You know, it's, it's a completely different point of view. I've never seen it in any other film before. So, you know, it's a very interesting project. It's, it's actually a whole uh, sort of center for this kind of meeting place between ethnography and visual culture. The filmmakers that made a film, they're central in what's called the Harvard Sensory Lab, I think, that explore the intersection between ethnographic practices and cinema in a more sort of experimental mode. I guess they're trying to extend our knowledge base by using film like that, just to simply provide new knowledge 
that's also a part of the ethics of film, I think, that's related to what I mentioned before, that aesthetic works in general and film provide new ways of seeing. And in doing that, they, in a sense, form their own knowledge bases, right? I think that's an ethical project, at least. Yeah, oh. I agree. And it's very interesting, this idea of an ethics that comes beyond the human perspective, because animal rights would fit right in. But I think, I think, you know, a lot of gender studies touches on these similar kind mm. of things, like a, a non-normative ethical stance. Mm-hmm. As an American comedian, George Carlin, who made like a, a point I've come back to thought about many times. It's kind of a joke, but it has implicit some interesting ideas. He's talking about death and he says like the whole discussion about death is completely one sided. You know, who mm. says life is uh, sacred? You know, that's just the living who, who are thinking about life as mm-hmm. sacred. Of course, he says it in a way that's much more funny than mm-hmm. I do. Mm-hmm. But the idea ethics covering a lot more ground than just our specific point of view. The importance of that seems to be a tendency that's slowly taking ground. Yeah, I, I think, for instance, the field of animal studies, there's an um, intersecting interest there with uh, ethics. Uh, all kinds of problems that arise in the wake of new sort of biometrical technologies, for instance. Uh, I think we're going to see more and more of uh, sort of ethics done professionally by philosophers that will deal with these issues around, well, the post-human uh, yeah. new technologies and uh, data, you know, algorithms maybe, and that kind of stuff, robots. So I think that would be a continuous expansion of the field of ethics. You know, it's not just about... <laughs> Aristotle, uh, those kind of uh, <laughs> guys wrote about or thought about ethics, you know, a couple of thousand years ago, but it's a uh, field that uh, is in need of continuous renewal, I think. Yeah, right. you made a point I thought was really mm. great, actually. <laughs> You're talking about the history of ethics. That's kind of how you start this film in the ethical Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I needed to have some of the background. So yeah. I, yeah. And yeah. you're talking about ethics not really being an integral part of film theory originally. And the idea like that, that post-modernism kind of lacks the same ethical debates about like, you know, truth or life or God, mm-hmm. these big ethical themes from, you know, Aristotle and Hume and all these others. But it has a very different kind of focus, you know, it's about post-colonialism and uh, yeah. feminism and all these things that to me are much more directly relevant to mm. kind of the life I'm living and seeing and dealing with in terms of everyday politics. Yeah. You're absolutely right, and I think that was part of the, my point that uh, although ethics wasn't maybe mentioned too often explicitly in that whole sort of period of criticism from the 60s, post-structuralism and all that, up until the present, it was still there, but in different skies. Like a lot of feminist studies would be actually a kind of ethical work, right? And post-colonial also, as to an example that you mentioned. Right? So I think that was part of my point that I wanted to sort of try to show how that field has also been part of cinema studies, actually, sometimes explicitly like from about 2005 and onward, it's become a pretty big presence in cinema studies. And there's so many books and articles internationally on film and ethics. Much of it started as, I guess, work on, in the Holocaust studies kind of genre, oh, yeah. right? but then it's a spread. So my book is just one of many film ethics books. But before that, and throughout the reign of post-structuralist theory, particularly, it was kind of almost like a dirty word. But before that, when literature was taught in you know colleges liberal arts colleges in the states and also in europe i guess it was partly as sort of a, almost like a existential guide to how you can sort of showing how to live better maybe right i mean there was certainly a strong ethical component to the teaching of literature and also critics and academics that wrote about literature poetry but also in film but then what happened i think in the 50s and 60s is that these fields literature artists remember to some extent too and film media studies were increasingly scientificized Okay. Because they were inspired by natural science models and by models from the more empirical side of social sciences. And that came in through structuralism and semiotics. And now, not suddenly, but relatively 
suddenly I think the study of literature should be as objective as possible. Mm. Right? It should eradicate all hints or traces of morality or even politics. So it was supposed to be like a pure study of literature based on models from linguistics, for instance, right? Okay, with all okay. these big names with structuralism, anthropology. So, you know, I've talked to some of the most brilliant literature professors of my parents' generation, maybe, that worked in the field of aesthetics in relation to literature, for instance, and that I agreed with on a lot of things, but not with ethics, because mm. they still thought ethics should stay out of it, because it's okay. it's not scientific, right? Yeah. Ethics are the values, and literature should be studied and taught as close to an objective framework that you find in other sciences as possible. But then something happened in the last one, two decades, where mm. post-structuralism sort of ran aground and were more or less replaced, sometimes by new approaches, sometimes by approaches that were indebted to post-structuralism, but they were also transforming themselves into something different, right? So ethics came back. But even through that reign of post-structuralism, ethics was sort of evident or could be evident as in fields such as post-colonial studies and feminism. Yeah. Well, that, was a, that was a big detour, I guess. And it's my, but I think a lot of people would recognize the picture yeah. that uh, literature studies, film studies at that time, 60s, 70s and 80s, tried to be molded in the form of uh, sort of science studies and uh, the system of literature, the system of film, right? I find that quite interesting because it also mirrors at least how I perceive like a general trend of understanding the world which is very you know you have distinct categories and the idea of an objective truth like mm. a, a shared normative clear picture where politics is distinctly its own part and the categories are separated very clearly and you know there's this um, criticism of at least my experience of like to the 90s, there, mm -hmm. there was a lot of a clear idea that the representations you had of politics or truth, the idea of it being objective and normative. But then when you have like something that, let's say, a computer game or a popular film that's explicitly political, mm. you, you have people saying, like, get politics out of my entertainment. The idea that it hasn't been politics all along. Like, there's a very interesting um, YouTube essayist. Jonathan McIntosh calls himself the pop culture detective. Oh. And what, what he does is he looks at a lot of like these 80s films, like these nostalgia films, and he looks at the kind of ethics that they have that have been normative for us. Things that are like explicitly thought of as normal behavior. He has a video called Stalking for Love, mm -hmm. where he looks at these romantic comedies mm -hmm. where you have a guy who's interested in a woman and he kind of hounds her. Mm -hmm. until he achieves the like, romantic mm -hmm. connection. Mm -hmm. And at that point, she's also delighted. And the idea <laughs> that the stalking process, which in real life is extremely disturbing and mm -hmm. very um, unnormal behavior, mm -hmm. becomes normalized. And then you have a generation growing up watching these films, being taught that this is kind of behavior that's okay. That's a kind of example of pleasurable cinema. That's very, you know, it, it feeds yeah. into your fantasies and your wish fulfillment and gives you a, a really uh, strange picture of behavior. And mm. On a formative level, they can function really well in terms of engaging your audience. But mm -hmm. in terms of the messaging and the underlying ideas that it kind of plants in your head, mm -hmm. they start to become really disturbing the closer you look at them. Yeah. I guess, yeah, yeah, what you're getting at is that it's uh, yeah, there's certain genres, maybe most of the genres of Hollywood cinema, for instance, that sort of understand themselves as being completely apolitical and yeah. innocent entertainment. And, and then, as it turns out, they do have a lot of <laughs> political implications. That's what you're talking about, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah isn't I, the it's, idea it's, it's of liberalism that it should yeah. be invisible? Like, it shouldn't be politics. It should just be the normal way things are. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Of course, money is the most important thing. What are you talking about? There's mm. no other 
possible idea of the world. Yeah, that sounds like a critic that I'm reading at the moment, Wendy Brown, that writes about the model of neoliberalism as something that economizes everything, all fields of life that have anything to do with money in the first place, but they are being colonized by the same logic, mm. right? So it's a kind of imperialistic force that it's true. colonizes every <laughs> other field, right? Yeah, <laughs> It's kind of bleak, actually. Yeah. It's like a dystopia, but it's a description of our present that reads like a dystopia, right? So it's fascinating what you say about romantic comedies, for instance, right? And the, how politics is made invisible in a sense, because that's also formal level in a sense that, you know, this concept of invisible editing that uh, yeah. was in place already with the start of this, uh, even in the silent film era, right? Codes of composition whose objective was to sort of hide the stitches and thereby also hide the fact that this was something man-made or Hollywood films were supposed to just be there, you know, and their making wasn't anybody's business in a sense, right? <laughs> and that's because, you know, it would be easier to have an uh, emotional effect on the viewer if they didn't pay attention to the construction of the film, right? And that's the idea yeah. anyway. Yeah. But it, it's interesting that, you know, Lars von Trier uses hard cuts very explicitly mm -hmm. so that you're extremely aware not only that you're watching a film, but like the situation and the time of the situation mm -hmm. becomes very distinct. But it's also, a, I think, a great way of representing the experience of time, like in your life. Sometimes it is like that, that you, you have almost like a hard cut from a situation mm -hmm. you're in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sudden transition of attention, for instance. Or? Yeah. Mm. But you have these two concepts that I'm still trying to work through. It's, it's bioscreens and bioethics. Let's hone in on bioethics again and, mm. and see if we can... That's uh, <laughs> also a kind of concept that I'm not sure is completely worked through yet at all. And it's certainly intimately related to the biovisual. I guess it's just uh, maybe another way of... It's a different emphasis, you know, it's emphasis on something that's already up there, maybe in front of you on, on a screen, right? as mm. opposed to visuality as a more a looser concept, you know. But um, like biovisuality, it also denotes this amalgam of different theories around images as living organisms that... Mm. Uh, Uh, you know, Belting and Mitchell and uh, Kemper, Solinska, right about, uh, probably also many others or some others. So it's basically the same thing again, bioscreen, in the sense that the screen is alive, maybe, and like an organism. And uh, in a sense, it becomes even more clear or um, obvious now with Zoom and all these uh, communication that is going on through the screen. And also when we have so many windows open on our laptops all the time, it's mm. like a collage or montage of different screens. And it's basically about life moving into the screen as well. You know, mm. that's also another sense of bioscreen, I think. And uh, I think at the time when I toyed around with the concept, it probably also played somewhere in my mind. It was also uh, this phenomenon in relatively recent art history of the bio art, right? And uh, what's this, uh, Eduardo Koch and his uh, sort of electrified rabbits. This is kind of experiments in the threshold of animals and biological organisms. That's not the only example. I mean, there are researchers working full-time on this strand of contemporary art where they explore biological processes through art. So I think that bio-art, bio-screen, that was probably also maybe uh, an association or resonance to the, to the concept of, of that. You know. Is that kind of related to like the scene of body modification and technology, the kind of implementing chips yeah. in the... I can't remember who it was, but there's the, an artist who's famous for, you know, putting electronic components inside his body typically with bad results but uh, mm. you know exploring mm. with that mm. kind of uh... I think that would be a frame also for uh, approaching that as a concept because I was interested in this 
collapse of I guess the human into the screen and mm. you know fusion of sort of a screen subjectivity and human consciousness subjectivity and yeah but it's it's again one of those loose terms but sometimes it's more engaging just to have them stay a little bit cryptic and not define them uh, mm. too much in a sense because it can generate more reflection than if you kind of I know that's kind of an, an easy way out of not <laughs> explaining a concept but <laughs> but on, on uh, like on a purely visual level it makes me think of videodrome in terms of interacting directly with the screen as a body as a living thing and thematically as well it works with the idea of transformation and identity as something quite mm. fluid in a sense mm -hmm. uh, very engaged in image making process that's an apt association i think to cronenberg and by screen uh, and also leviathan i guess could be because it's you know the screen is filled with uh, the perspectives of other animate beings and uh, and what you see is actually a lot of biology in a sense right with the, the sea and the waves and fish so i guess it could just also be a way to accentuate the fact that you know screen whether it's a sort of art screen or a more mainstream film screen can be filled with biological material in, in a sense that's not necessarily always narrative or within the codes of ordinary narrative fiction but something to look at you know the biological life the variety of it and, mm. and so forth you know so but it's an intentionally loose concept i would say when you work with a concept of that, is that like a tool of exploration in a sense that you have themes that you want to explore and then you use it as a framework? Is that how it functions? I guess it can be sometimes, very often, of course, this somebody else has already thought of a given term and mm. uh, I try to maybe put my own spin on it or understand it in my own way and try to develop it. Sometimes maybe come up with neologisms. And uh, What is a neologism? Neologism, like a new word, yeah. creating a word, basically. Some people don't really like that. Uh, researchers are not supposed to do it, I think, uh, because I think it might be up to, I don't know, poets and writers to do that mm. and not researchers are supposed to be more sort of, uh, I don't know, working with established terminology. I don't know, but uh, sometimes that happens and uh, I think it can be a framework for yeah exploring new ideas right because if you don't exactly know what the word is that's a pretty fruitful situation in order to arrive at new knowledge actually sometimes it could be the opposite almost that uh, you've done some hopefully concentrated thinking around a certain subject maybe for a long time maybe for years and then at a certain point your reflections kind of culminate in a word or in a concept mm -hmm. right that might be a shortened for something that might cover at least some of the aspects that you were thinking about. So it, it depends a little bit from case to case, I would say. But um, methodologically, I guess, I'm pretty influenced by the Dutch cultural critic, Mieke Ball, who wrote a book called Traveling Concepts in the Humanities and right. about 20 years ago. with it. Well, she wrote about several sort of big concepts that different disciplines attach different meanings to. But her overall point was that concepts is sort of the main tool for at least some humanities scholars, right? Scholars in the arts, basically, I mean, whether it's art history, literature, film and media, musicology, theater, performance studies, we work with concepts and concepts are the kind of building blocks for mm. the knowledge that we try to produce and also the knowledge that we try to preserve that's already there, that we try to preserve for future students and audiences. So concepts is kind of a key as a method or as an approach also. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think I have yeah. to think about that a bit. Concepts as building blocks to explore in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Returning a little bit to what we were talking about before, actually, there's a point I thought was very interesting. You were writing about how images take up space in a sense. Images through popular culture, for instance, they kind of 
take up space of our vision and they define how we understand the world. I'm paraphrasing a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that, you know, a lot of transgressive arts, they kind of have to use forceful methods to break through pervasive images to approach the kind of ethics that are non-normative. Mm-hmm. You, you have mm-hmm. to kind of challenge the images that are, are usual. So you can't use the same imagery. You kind of have to break it up in some sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm not quite sure where you are in what I've written, but it sounds to me like this is some comment about what Guy Debord called the society of the spectacle and all the sort of the noise, the images that surround us and that sort of preoccupy us on our screens and that are sort of more day-to-day, wall-to-wall images in a sense, right? And entertainment and commercials and ads and all that. And then in order to make an impact, in order to make us think about things differently, we have to make images that are able to sort of penetrate all the noise. But that's something like yeah, that. Yeah, you, you had in mind or? refer to this guy, uh, Clyde Taylor, and his notion of entelic. Yeah, that's also a kind of a complex term, I think, that I've used maybe ill-advisedly, I don't know. But that's post-colonial thinker, and he's yeah. problematizing the um, stronghold that Western ideals and ideas about aesthetic experience and form has on on all of us. And um, he's trying to sort of, again, expand the remit of aesthetic experience to include practices that come from beyond the West, in a sense. And mm. he's interested in criticizing this hierarchy where, for some reason, artworks that happen to be made by white male often historical figures tend to rank the highest in terms of aesthetic value and quality, mm-hmm. right? And the uh, works by women uh, and uh, other ethnicities are sort of hardly present maybe in these kinds of hierarchies. I think that's part of his critique. But the concept of entelechy is an old concept from you know, Greek philosopher, I think. Uh, well, actually, that isn't all that hard to explain, really, I think, because he, he does it very well himself in the book. I think he uses the example of Kleenex as a brand name but it's a brand name that's been turned into a generic name ah, yeah, right? yeah. but it was originally lots of different examples of that yeah, like duct tape for instance yeah that's an analogy but he uses it I guess pedagogically to illustrate his point that when we talk about art with a capital A yeah. we really mean a specific version of art and that's you know the renaissance painters and yeah. you know Picasso and the modernists and Van Gogh and so forth and we don't really mean all of these other people that also make art mm. so it's in a sense we're a special instance of something like a brand is somehow through sort of ideological processes of naturalization transformed into a normative instance, like to the general. Mm-hmm. It becomes generalized. Yeah. That's what entelechy means. Right? And I think it's a, it's a pretty interesting point that he's making in, in the book about art specifically, how certain types of art, which has a particular historical and cultural origin like all other artworks, but they manage in a sense to shed their cultural specificity and become universal mm-hmm. and normative. And it's interesting to scrutinize the historical processes that, that made it so. Mm-hmm. Right? How has this come about, you know? Well, probably through support from different art institutions and academies, but also the role of critics throughout and all kinds of entangled processes. There's something about this tune on the radio that's just repeated endlessly, and then mm. you just end up liking it because it heard it so many times. Uh, <laughs> osmosis uh, yeah. or something. It's a repeated idea and it becomes normalized. You know, how does something become normal? That's also part of it, yeah, exactly. But the very important point in terms of Taylor's theory and entelechy is that the example stops being an example yeah. and yeah. becomes a normative, yeah. right? Roland Barthes wrote about this in his early work, his book called uh, Mythologies, he wrote about how ideology is naturalized and how, for instance, commercial images, standards of beauty, for instance, become entelechial in a sense, become, yeah. they stop being particular examples that embodies particular experiences and situations historically, but they become some universal givens or normative instances mm. that then all other expressions have to sort of try to compete with in a sense yeah, or try to do. That's true. I think that's hugely fascinating and uh, yeah. should be explored more, I think. <laughs> it's interesting because you really can find it in all facets of life really like trends in makeup or literature wherever like something just 
for a while becomes the standard. Being beautiful, it yeah. means wearing these exactly. specific yeah. types of yeah. makeup yeah. now, but before it used to be something else. Mm. Fashion is a good example of it, yeah. And also uh, body images, of course. It's maybe one of the most obvious manifestations of that kind of relationship between a standard or norm and uh, specific examples. Yeah. Really. And th that kind of process establishes a hierarchy, right? Or something is of higher value. Yeah. I mean, the standard and normative is of higher value than all the other instances. On some level, it's very abstract and theoretical, but on, on the nipple level, it's, it's really pretty plain. And I think with the, the example of the Kleenex, I think it's mm. uh, very illustrative for this process because Kleenex wasn't the generic type of product or object. It was just a brand name for something that uh, other brands made as well. But yeah. then it became exemplary of everything else. You can see that in genres as well. You know, maybe it wasn't the first instance of this type of thing, but it mm. became the universal instance yeah. that everything exactly. refers to. There's also in the way that, for instance, literature or film is being taught in, in universities yeah. where you don't have time to <laughs> read mm. everything or see everything. So, for instance, in media, film studies, particular films are chosen as examples for a whole genre, right? Mm. You know, whether it's Blade Runner for science fiction, Scarface, gangster film. And those films, you know, get the privilege of becoming sort of standards. But in reality, they're just one of thousands of possible yeah. films that you could show to your students. And they have specificity that some of it is related to the genre and some of it maybe isn't. Yeah, yeah, because genres are constructions, right? Yeah. So most films wouldn't fit 100% into any given genre, but they would have elements that point in different directions of genres. Let's get back to some of your work. You've recently written a book, finished, mm -hmm. as I understand. It's not published yet. No, I think it will come out in December. I can't remember the date, but I think it's in just before Christmas or in December. And it's almost done. I have the proofs now that I'm supposed to hand in by next week, I think. Nice. What's the <laughs> yeah. title and what's it about? The book is uh, kind of different from the ethics book, although it has some uh, overlapping. It's called um, Rethinking Art and Visual Culture, The Poetics of Opacity. I wanted the book just to be named The Poetics of Opacity, actually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, I guess uh, publishers thought it was maybe a little bit too obscure. Uh, but it's to put it very simply, it's um, I guess it's an examination of fuzzy, unclear, blurry images and the way that they are used as uh, more or less a usually specific or uh, intended strategy in, in aesthetic works, in photography, in video, art and uh, installation art to some extent, and uh, television, one chapter on television and, uh, and, and cinema. And again, it's a sort of a willful challenge of some orthodoxies, you know. I wanted to explore what kind of knowledge obscure, opaque images mm. might be able to provide also. So it's uh, and going against the, the gray maybe I was struck by how how much of a fetish sharpness has become in you know yeah. new television screens are marketed this is even sharper than the previous model <laughs> and uh, the surface is everything and it's supposed to be crisp and super sharp and very technical uh, yeah, very technical. And then I started thinking about, hmm, might there be a tradition there also in, in aesthetics that have valued, for different reasons, the less sharp image. It started with a project that I was invited to contribute to on what's called precarious aesthetics. Don't ask me what that is, because it's kind of... <laughs> no, it's uh, just joking, but it's, it's, it's also kind of fluid and, well fuzzy grainy images is just part of that but that was what got me going in this direction and uh, I wrote an article on uh, American avant-garde filmmaker called Ernie Gare he's pretty well known in at least in art cinema or avant-garde circles and I also was lucky enough to see him talk about his work um, at the conference in the US and one of his specialties is kind of this uh, illegible images and um, in his film practice and video practice in, in more recent years he would for instance take old found film footage from the early 20th century that was in the process of dissolving and then make something new out of that. One of the most uh, well-known examples, I guess, of this phenomenon is Bill Morrison. You've seen, 
I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Keisha. But that was just a starting point. And then there's a chapter on that. And then I wrote about different artists and filmmakers. John Comfra, British uh, filmmaker in the art cinema and post-colonial vein. And um, it's a kind of a short tour of different artworks, also mostly contemporary, ending up with sound, actually, the first time ever I write about sound. Well, it's not only sound, it's, it's maybe still images, but the last chapter is on the latest record by uh, Lowe, it's an American indie rock band okay. uh, who made a, a record in 2018 of full of noise. So in a sense, it's basically maybe trying to think about or write about visual noise. In a sense. So that was that <laughs> project. I realize it's still so fresh that it's difficult to be very lucid about it, I think. In, in you know, I've noticed a tendency. There was a documentary two, three years ago mm -hmm. called Kaneba. It's about a brother who's interviewing his brother and it fits into the extreme uh, film category. A lot of the reason why is because he films in extreme close-ups mm -hmm. with a lot of mm -hmm. out-of-focus elements. Okay. It feels physically too close into the like sweaty and personal mm -hmm. space where mm -hmm. you maybe shouldn't mm -hmm. be. Yeah. It's a pretty good film, yeah, very yeah. interesting. So he uses sort of out-of-focus, sort of deliberate uh, aesthetic uh, effect. Very uh, much yeah, so, yeah. yeah. It was a can... Cannibal, it's called. Cannibal. Not cannibal, but cannibal. Yeah, mm. yeah. It has resonance thematically yeah, to yeah. cannibalism, mm. um, without spoiling too much. Yeah. But <laughs> it's both visually and thematically, it's quite uneasy. Mm. It's also kind of fused in like the experimental and arts mm -hmm. scene of, of cinema tradition. Yeah, it's mostly, it covers mostly experimental film and mm -hmm. video photography to some extent. I read about Trevor Paglen, who's both an artist, a photographer and uh, academic, who has made all these telephoto, long-distance photographs of secret military bases in the US. And of course, they are super opaque or grainy and yeah. uh, difficult to see. It was a bit of a challenge uh, <laughs> writing that, but I guess it should be. And I'm uh, glad it's over in a yeah. sense. <laughs> <laughs> Not directly related, but some of the landscape that it reminds me of is working with narratives or world building in culture that has a lot of obscure elements that are difficult to decipher or just mm -hmm. unknown. Mm -hmm. So you have to activate your head. You're kind of filling in the blanks, mm -hmm. both aesthetically, but also yeah. maybe thematically. Yeah, that's part of what I was interested in too, actually. And, uh... I have this concept of narrative opacity. Uh, one chapter on David Lynch, uh, yeah. um, Twin Peaks, The Return, uh, yeah. uh, particularly the one episode, the episode with the atomic explosion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which amazing is, uh, episode. Uh, amazing, yeah. So uh, I'm not sure if it's the most successful of the chapters, but I, I try to sort of say something about opacity and narrative. But also the, the beginning of the episode is, uh, of course, sort of an explosion. It takes us deep into the particles of the explosion, right? So it becomes a very abstract in a sense, non-figurative setup as the shot goes on. When I come to think about it, it's kind of an eclectic uh, array of different works that I look at, but that have that in common, that they sort of are at least partially made up of uh, either out of focus or blurry or fuzzy or grainy imagery or sounds. So. It's not a very mainstream media project, I no, think, but it's but very uh, interesting. And David Lynch is, is, is a great example of leaving things out. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, making yeah. it super engaging. Yeah, yeah. The mystery of the filmatic form itself. Mm, absolutely. And there's a lot of, you know, art cinema that would qualify as being opaque in a narrative sense that you, you know, nobody knows what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. The Antonioni films or uh, Alain René, things like Last Year in Marie Bad and all yeah. those classics. But you also have, to some extent, in, well, not very frequent, but in, in Hollywood cinema, film noir particularly, is a genre that often tends to have some loose ends. Right? Yeah. You know, the big sleep, things like that, you know, film. So it's kind of confusing that Howard Hawks, the director, I think he had to, toward the end of the film, call up the author Raymond Chandler and ask, what was that about? And uh, <laughs> even Chandler himself didn't know. The plot was so convoluted, right? yeah. it didn't make sense. 
it was full of gaps and uh, illogical incidents maybe and things like that so it's uh, but that's on a narrative level that my main impetus was to look on the level of the image mm. like grainy or out of focus or whatever image I look forward to reading that sounds very interesting something a bit unexplored at least for me yeah I think yeah. there aren't that many at least not books on the subject I think uh, there's maybe one that I come across recently and uh, there's uh, of course some artists and critics like Hito Style has written about imperfect images so there, there are some here and there but and uh, before we started recording, you talked a little bit about uh, a different new project. Yeah. yeah, that's what I think might be the next book on uh, this plate that's caused so much locomotion in uh, in Norway over the last two years, Ways of Seeing, which is a fascinating piece of work. And I think it's groundbreaking in many different ways, actually. I was finishing that other book when the play premiered, and uh, after I saw it at the Festspilna in, in Bergen, mm. I really uh, wanted to plunge into it, but I had to finish the book. <laughs> so <laughs> it was on a back burner, as they say, for a while, and now the book is finished, and uh, I'm hoping to be able to work on it uh, over the next half a year. I think it's a, a play that's going to be remembered as one of the most uh, sort of pivotal works in Norwegian context from this early in the century. I'm interested in many aspects of the work, not the least of which is uh, this interrelation between law and art. Yeah, politics and documentary. Politics, of course, theater. also, yeah. But also the, the, the sense in which the play itself embodies the reflections on juridical reflections in relation yeah. to surveillance, right? They have Ketty Lund playing himself in the, in the play as a former judge of the Supreme Court in Norway. But then again, the trial that's going on right now, of course, has the theatrical elements. Mm. So it's like art and law is sort of... <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. There's not shifting. many examples of that. Uh, no, no. I think it's an unexplored field, so that might be a, a challenge in itself to come across to find out who is written about this abroad, for instance, or in another context. But that's just one part. There's also, of course, the surveillance that's been um, on my mind quite a lot in the last year or so. Mm. I taught a course for my students in the spring semester. Usually that's always film history course where we cover the history of cinema from Lumiere Brothers up until the present. Mm. But I decided to do something different. So instead of uh, the film, I used the whole course to surveillance and film as a theme. Okay. And um, Ways of Seeing, a screener of that was the last work that the students uh, had to watch. Of course, but then Corona happened and <laughs> yeah. uh, the last few weeks became a little bit more chaotic. But uh, yeah, so surveillance, which is on a, one of the main topics, at least in the, in the play and many other things. So uh, I'm quite enthusiastic about that project and uh, looking forward to dig even deeper into, into that. Sounds very interesting. Mm -hmm. Ways of Seeing is kind of a play in three acts where the first act is the play itself. The second act is the media circus that follows uh -huh. some controversial acts of vandalism. Mm -hmm. And then the last act, presumably, yeah. would be like the legal court case yeah. following it. And they all thematically resonate strongly with each other mm. and mirror each other in a very interesting way. I'm not sure what other example I would point to that played out like uh, this. Uh, that's a very neat way of uh, <laughs> laying it out, actually, three acts. <laughs> You're right. I mean, it does sound like that. Absolutely. It's... Uh, <laughs> I'll remember that. <laughs> Feel free to use it. Yeah. So, Asbjorn, uh, do you have an unpleasant recommendation for us? It's uh, not every day that I get uh, <laughs> questions about those kinds of recommendations, uh, <laughs> but one experience that made a particularly intense impression on me, a work that I think has to be my recommendation for you, and that's... Um, Low Double Negative. It's an uh, album by the Minnesota band that uh, I have also written about uh, in the forthcoming book, briefly. Um, record that came out in 2018, which is filled with noise, especially, well, the first couple of tracks. It's a beautiful work, but it's also very demanding. And it's like being uh, immersed in these uh, noisy soundscapes. 
I think that's really one of the most emotionally affecting works of culture that I have come across recently, so yeah. Is this um, in the vein of ambient, would you say, or is it... Uh, a little bit, yeah, I think. But it's, Is it like a landscape of sound that you're... I guess it could be described that way. The main tradition that it inscribes itself into, I think, is the noise rock type of thing from bands like Sonic Youth and that kind of stuff. But it does have some ambient elements, I think, mm-hmm. uh, to it. It's also it's kind of a despairing work, I think. It's a comment, more or less explicit, about contemporary American politics and the direction. <laughs> countries going in and it's the comments i think that's directed toward the, all the noises social media uh. the impossibility of getting through to people now because everybody has their faces in, in their screens so it's partly about that so it's a very it's a very strong expression and it's um somehow they managed to balance uncomfortable sheets of sound with beauty i mean there's also the fact that when you make something that is almost kind of ugly sounding or at least very perceptually demanding basically uncomfortable unpleasant but then throughout as, as the work goes along you also include moments that are quieter and that are a beauty the beauty sticks out more. yeah that's true <laughs> instead of if you, if you feel everything everything is super uh, beautiful all the time it doesn't it has the same effect so, so it's, it's probably that but I, it's a very powerful overwhelming uh, work so that's be my recommendation thank you Aspen. that sounds really interesting i look forward to checking that out uh, and thank you uh, so much for having me on your uh, wonderful podcast thomas you're very welcome it's delightful so thank you for listening the music for this episode was made by umulium that's svara ogor and you skarning if you want to get in touch with us, send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com or check our Instagram at Instagram slash unpleasantmovies. My name is Thomas Simonson Bambra, and uh, with that, I'm going to say goodbye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.